Welcome to Pure Nonfiction, the podcast interviewing documentary filmmakers. I'm Tom Powers, the documentary programmer for the Toronto International Film Festival and artistic director of Doc NYC. On this episode, I talked to Dawn Porter about her four-part series, Bobby Kennedy for President, on Netflix. Dawn was a previous guest on this podcast on episode two. She was talking about her films, Gideon's Army, about public defenders in the South, and Trapped, about state restrictions on abortion. The theme of racial injustice runs throughout her work, and it's central to her take on Robert Kennedy. During his days as a campaign manager for John F. Kennedy, then as attorney general, Robert Kennedy had to deal with civil rights as a prominent issue, but it often took second priority to appeasing white voters in the South. After JFK's assassination, Robert took a deeper interest in America's poor and issues of race. Dawn's film shows him touring the Mississippi Delta in 1967 with a reporter. Senator, what do you make of the problem of poverty in this our poorest state? I think that uh, considering we have a gross national product of some $700 billion and that uh, we spend $75 billion on armaments, you would think that uh, we could be doing more for those who are poor and particularly for our children who had nothing to do with being born into this world but uh, don't have enough to eat. And what we have here, of course, is a considerable amount of hunger. We have uh, the children with distended stomachs. And the fact is that we're not doing what we should be doing in this country to deal with this problem. Bobby Kennedy for president traces his political growth, first as a U.S. senator, then in his 1968 campaign for the Democratic primary that was cut short by an assassin's bullet on June 6th. The final episode in the series revisits questions about the murder that have stirred conspiracy theories for 50 years. I asked Dawn what Robert Kennedy meant to her before she started this project. You know, I think I knew Robert Kennedy as a man in history books. Um, in history books, but also on my grandmother's wall. Mm-hmm. <laughs> um, so, you know, Bobby Kennedy was really important to black people. And my grandmother had a picture of the Kennedy brothers on the wall in her apartment. And, you know, when you're a kid, you don't think about why your your parents or your grandparents have yeah. uh, pictures on the wall. But, you know, starting to do this project, I came back to that. Like, what would make... There wasn't a picture of me on the wall. <laughs> So who is this this white guy? Um, but um, I think he was more of a like kind of like Hamilton before Hamilton, huh. you know, like kind of somebody you kind of know things about. Um, and then as we got into it, um, I just, you know, not only learned so much, but really started to feel um, what it was like to create a leader you know, and how he evolved as a politician and a person um, was what interested me. But particularly his interactions with the black community were really interesting to me and watching how they evolved over time. Robert Kennedy uh, famously signed warrants to uh, to wiretap yes. um, Martin Luther King in 1962, then again in 1963, under a lot of pressure from uh, J. Edgar Hoover. But he did it. Uh, uh, but he did it, and um, I'm interested to know what you make of that yeah. chapter of 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 his life. Um, so you know, and that's where um, 
that's something I actually, I don't love that he did it, but I love that it shows the complexity um, of his life, um, you know, his personal opinions, his, his public and political opinions. Um, he was, you know, he came out of a, a strong anti-communist, um, you know, political background where he, you know, was like communism was, was evil number one. And, you know, I think that 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 world you see that in his targeting of Castro and you right. see that in the beginnings of the Vietnam War and and during you know McCarthy hearings no. when he's counsel to that committee so that background is hard to shed you know and you know Hoover there's a lot of pressure and saying that you know King was like in in league with the communists um so but you know you you back up where King is arrested early on um, and sentenced to hard labor, you know, sentenced to like chain gang for sitting in at a lunch counter um, during JFK's uh, campaign. And uh, JFK, there was debate about whether JFK should even call Coretta Scott, you know, King. Um, And Bobby was against it. He was like, if you call, if you look like you're aligning with the Kennedys, we will lose the southern states. This is in 1960. This uh, is the 1960 campaign. During JFK's campaign. And so, you know, JFK, you know, Bobby's like kind of out of the room. And, you know, JFK decides with another advisor that he's going to just call her and say, I hope he's okay. That's all he did. Um, Bobby Kennedy's furious about this, says you've lost the election. You know, this is not going to be forgiven. Um, that you did this. But then he thinks overnight and he's so, uh, you know, angry that King is being held in this prison that he then calls the prison. And uh, he's directly credited with saving MLK's life. People thought that King was going to be murdered that night. So that footage of him coming out is some of the the footage that has not really been seen before. And you see at that time that, you know, what the Kennedy brothers couldn't have understood was... um, that Harry Belafonte, you know, kind of gives the okay to support um, to support JFK, says to the black people, yes, we should support him. Harry Belafonte then makes this famous commercial where he says, I'm supporting JFK. Black vote comes out, you know, tremendously. Because Jackie Kennedy. Robinson was supporting Jackie Robinson had yeah. defected and yeah. was supporting the Republicans. Jackie Robinson felt the Democrats were not were not helping. And and they were not. They were not strong enough. And that's kind of the point, is that they were not strong enough. Um and but Kennedy didn't do it for political reasons. He actually thought that they would it was gonna be the, the death of the campaign. So it turns out to not only not be the death, but actually maybe to even have delivered um, that election. But then you see, you know, a few years later, he signs the, that warrant. So his his evolution was not complete. Mm-hmm. You know, he did not spring. Neither Kennedy brother was like springing fully formed into a civil rights champion. Um, they had to be urged and pushed. That was a conversation that happened over many years. And I feel like that's something that, that this series can add to, you know, the understanding of. So as I understand it, the the way this whole project got started was not about Bobby Kennedy's life, but about his death. Someone came to you because they had unique access to yeah. Sirhan Sirhan's legal team uh, who uh, were very motivated to revisit the very questionable circumstances right. um, around uh, Bobby Kennedy's death. So from that starting point, you crafted this four-part series it's largely about Bobby Kennedy's life. And in the last episode, you uh, dig into the uh, questions about his death. 
Right. Um, and a big figure is is Paul Schrade. Can, yeah. can you talk about who Paul Schrade is? Yeah. So we um, we were approached by a team who was interested, was working with Paul Schrade, and they were interested. Because I had done Gideon's Army, they thought, you know, you're interested in the rights of the accused. Sirhan Sirhan is still alive. He's in prison in California. He's been denied parole. You know, and, and one thing people should understand is the standard for denying people parole is whether you are danger to the community. So if you look at that standard, you know, 70-something-year-old Sirhan Sirhan, is he really a danger to the community? That's supposed to be the standard. And yet every time he comes up for parole, the question is, this was a really terrible crime, and have you taken responsibility for the crime? That's not the legal standard. Hmm. So, you know, we should either change the standard or we should apply it. Um, You could question the standard, but you should apply it fairly. So... um, so I was interested in that, but I'm not a conspiracy person. So what I did is I hired um, an investigative journalist, and she, Lauren Caps, she's fantastic. She's done like front lines and fault lines and all of those. You know, she's an anti-Jew girl detective. Mm-hmm. So I was like, go to the original files. She went to the L.A. Police Department. You know, she went and went through all these files. We have like all of these books, including like, you know, eight binders that are a full transcript of the Sirhan Sirhan trial. And, you know, we could not find evidence of a second gun. That's not, you know, I would love to have been the person that could finally prove this, but that's not what we found. But what I did find was that his his trial was not um, what you would want for anyone that you loved. So to me, you know, a few reviews have like, she you know, she believes there was a second gun. I don't necessarily believe there's a second gun. I believe Sirhan's trial was not what one would want out of a just criminal justice system. And I think that that is uh, and, uh, break ironic that down, and too bad. Break down that for me. What are the things that you find most wanting about his trial? Well, his uh, his lawyers, despite the fact that there are um, there's something like eight witnesses who saw a girl with a polka dot dress and a man with her. Um, and who said, we shot him. And one person saw three people come in and two people come out, including this polka dot dress girl and her companion. Um, One of those is a woman named Sandra Serrano. We found her. We interviewed her. She has the same story she's always had. She has no reason whatsoever to make this story up. She's not before or since she was on the stairs with these people came out and said we shot him and they you know ran away this other couple saw them so there's that which is also cockamamie because if you had shot why him would you why say would you that? be broadcasting so you're like you know crazy people but so so you know but it's there yes. and people should at least ask her about it the way she was treated was was terrible it's not like people who were asking her but you know the best evidence so is- she never came up in the trial, for instance, uh, Sirhan Sirhan's defense lawyers were never making a strong effort to point towards any, but anything else, any collaborators. So the, you know, the other thing, and now I'm going to sound like I'm on the second gun theory, but you know, the other, I think the strongest evidence was there was a coroner, um, Dr. Noguchi, and he said that the bullet entered JFK's head um, at a few inches away. Nobody places Sirhan at a few inches away. Um, so there's all these questions about bullets and X, Y, Z. So the point isn't whether or not these things are true. It's that they weren't brought up in the trial because Sirhan Sirhan's defense lawyer um, stipulated to his guilt. So, like, if you're on trial for murder 
And there's all these, like, there's ballistics evidence that wasn't tested. There's witnesses who weren't cross-examined. And there's a coroner saying that the <laughs> the way that the bullet went in doesn't match the guy who was arrested for it. At the very least, you would bring that up. Mm-hmm. And none of this was brought up. So, you know, he had no real defense. Um, so that's the, the issue I have with the trial is because what that does is it means people don't believe the verdict. And that opens the way for all these conspiracy theories to to fester. And we don't feel satisfied. So I thought that that was interesting, um, you know, to see. I also was I was interested in, you know, his brother, his family um, kind of there was, you know, he was an Arab um, he was a Jordanian citizen, so there's a little bit of that happening. Um, you know, he's described as a swarthy assailant and that kind of thing. So, you know, um, it's it's we're still talking about the same kinds of issues like in that Sirhan trial as we are talking about today. So I just thought it was interesting. I do not believe <laughs> that there is evidence of a second gunman. Um, so I just want to make that clear. So yeah. t- brings me back to... Paul Schrade. Yes. Paul Schrade was, <laughs> was your question. <laughs> was a union organizer who was with Bobby Gaines that night, was hit by one of the yeah. bullets, uh, thought that he might have been killed, um, uh, but he wasn't. And today he remains obsessed, uh, yes. if that's not too strong a word I about what happened. Yeah. yeah. Paul Schrade is convinced that there was a second gunman. Um, and Paul, you know, was grievously injured. He was the first person shot that night. Um, he had been working with Bob and Kennedy. He had introduced, he's one of the people that introduced Cesar Chavez and Dolores Huerta to Bobby Kennedy and really encouraged him and, and pushed him to, you know, go out, um, walk picket lines with them. Um, Bobby Kennedy very famously breaks Cesar Chavez's last fast. Um, so Paul is, you know, a smart and lovely and committed activist, you know. Um, and, you know, through, I thought it was interesting there, it was interesting to see Bobby Kennedy through Paul's eyes. You know, Paul was kind of a firsthand witness to so much of the organizing. And, and organizing was really important then. And, you know, I'm kind of like a politics junkie. Like, I like seeing how the sausage is made. So Paul gives us kind of a window into that. Um, and then also a window into, um, you know, post-Kennedy's death. Um, kind of how does that legacy live on? I mean, in addition to having concerns about the trial, Paul uh, is the person who fought for decades in order to open a Robert F. Kennedy school, which exists now on the site of the Ambassador Hotel. Um, it originally was a Trump property, and <laughs> which is kind of like a funny, very satisfying detail. <laughs> Irony. <laughs> Um, and so, uh, so Paul Schrade remains committed to trying to figure out what happened yeah. uh, that night since he doesn't accept the right. the official uh, record. Um, uh, to, you know, to what extent does he have any interaction with the Kennedy family? How do they um, yeah, no, regard that? They, you know, he's such a good person and he was, you know, close with RFK. So um, he is in touch with Kathleen Kennedy, um, with Carrie Kennedy. Um, I think, I think Rory knows him. I mean, I know Rory. He's definitely in touch with Bobby Jr. So he has, you know, Ethel Kennedy sent him a bust of RFK after the funeral. Um, so I can't speak for the family, but what I think is, 
Paul was such a dedicated aide that he's almost like an extended family person. He's not some Johnny come lately who with a, you know, conspiracy theory. He has his interest in in the case is because he thinks it's justice for his friend Bob. So I think that they are quite um, compassionate about his, they understand how much he deeply loved RFK. I mean, it, it really, you know, almost ruined his life. He went to a deep depression. He, he really suffered after his death. When we think about uh, Robert Kennedy and his achievements, I think a, a lot of what comes to the foreground are symbolic moments mm-hmm. when he's breaking the fast mm-hmm. with uh, Cesar Chavez, when he's giving a speech in South Africa mm-hmm. uh, about segregation, um, when he's uh, giving a speech to a black crowd on the night that Martin Luther King has been assassinated. And those are powerful moments that I think do have uh, meaning, but it's different than being active as a politician to you know, to do something, to create right. legislation, right. which I feel is there's less of in, in his career. Right. I mean, is that fair to say? You know, once he was elected to to the Senate, um, he was a really effective senator for New York. I mean, you know, some of the he used, you know, kind of a national he had a national platform. So he was certainly one of those people who was interested in, you know, uh, international relations as well as national issues, which there were many. Um but, you know, doing things like he was really active on fair housing committees, on um, Native American rights, which we don't even like get into. And he was extremely, you know, interested um, and, you know, and, and did a lot of work on that. Um, I can't give you like a bill count. I wish I could. I think I need- Well, there's one project that you do bring up, which is this project he uh, initiated in Bedford-Stuyvesant, uh, yeah. a neighborhood of Brooklyn. Yeah. I congratulate the people of Bedford-Stuyvesant. We've been distressed by the divisions that have taken place in the United States between blacks and whites. The fact is that we can work together. The fact is that we can make a better society. And the fact is that we will, and we'll have a better America for the next generation of Americans. Thank you very much. Can you explain what that was and what you think the the legacy of that project yeah. is? So Bedford Syverson was a, a neighborhood, um, lower income neighborhood, um, mostly minority neighborhood in Brooklyn. Um, and at the time in the 60s, it was really economically depressed, you know, a lot of unemployment, um, you know, really challenged neighborhood. And Kennedy felt that um, if they could kind of turn around Bed-Stuy, if they could bring jobs into that neighborhood and bring some of the wealth of New York City into that economically depressed area, that that could possibly be a model for the rest of the country. So he worked really, really hard to to bring like the downtown New York City bankers to get them to invest in Brooklyn. Um, and he used all of his political capital and his political strength in order to corral New Yorkers. Um, but he he did something else. He hired a black man, Franklin Thomas, who would go on to become president of the Ford Foundation. Mm. And he said, Frank is in charge. And there's, there's one um, thing we cut out, but... Um, 
you know, this is the 1960s. There's a young 30-something-year-old black man who's in charge. People were responding because it was Bobby Kennedy, you know, and they were they were answering the call. And they're they're at some local meeting, and somebody says, okay, and, and we'll get, you know, speaking to Bobby, he says, we'll get back to you. And he says, you don't get back to me. Frank's in charge. Mm-hmm. I, like, Frank is the person in charge. And Frank Thomas told me that every time Bobby was in New York, he always, no entourage, no big deal, he always went to Brooklyn and met with Frank, and they went carefully over exactly what was happening in Bed-Stuy. And I think that that does, you know, say something about him. He wasn't just, you know, bringing his famous face to things. He really, and Bedford-Stuyvesant program exists to this day, and there mm-hmm. are Kennedys who are on the board of it. Um, and, you know, it did. He how, got, how is it active today? What does it do today? Um, so there, it's an economic development, you know, it's like one of those community investment um, things. So... You can get grants, you know, from from it. Um, he so Bobby Kennedy got a plant to open. Um, he there was an economic empowerment thing where people got actual jobs. Um, he also realized that having like a beautification program, and this was like Frank Thomas too. So like if people's houses look nice, mm. you know that like gives you certain pride. There was a lot of black ownership in that neighborhood, and and he and Frank Thomas talked about this a lot. You want to encourage black ownership. So, um, you know, Frank Thomas, like, was just another person who who said, you know, he just he just was uh, he was solid. He was consistent. He wasn't a person who was using things for, you know, camera ops. Um, So I was like, you know, it was a very impressive. Frank Thomas is a lovely man who's in his, you know, 80s now. And, um, you know, just could recall all of these stories, um, but how important it was to him to be recognized by somebody that important. He recognized how important it was for Bobby Kennedy to come out to Brooklyn. He didn't summon him downtown. Uh, I mean, you and we're talking about all these uh, truly wonderful qualities uh, about Bobby Kennedy. Um, he's also a figure of his time. He, he had a what seems to be a kind of nasty streak of homophobia uh, towards Bayard Rustin. Um, uh, you know, he was... Not so great on, on women's rights either. Right. Was, Not we, a lot yeah. of women, you know, in... Um, yeah, I mean, you know, I think we have to acknowledge that... Um, I don't think it's I don't think it's enough to excuse to say he's a man of his time because he certainly could have hired some girls, mm-hmm. and that's <laughs> what know. he called them too, <laughs> right? Um, so you know, there's there's some still some growth. I mean, you know, the one. So thing, I wonder how you grapple with that as yeah. a biographer. Um, you know, for me, I think um, well, one thing that was difficult was I really wanted to have first person interviews, you know, people who were there. I didn't want to have yeah. biographers and historic, you know, historians who were looking back. Um, so you kind of sacrifice a little bit of context because, you know, his critics, Neil Gallagher, who was the congressman at the time, probably wasn't so concerned about Bobby Kennedy's, you know, not being so great on on women. So mm-hmm. you kind of, you know, and people are dying. People are, you know, there's there's not that the first person. Well, Marion Wright uh, Edelman is the is one person who stands out to me as, uh, you know, being frank that she didn't have a good early uh, opinion of uh, of Robert Kennedy. In fact, I'm not quite sure what to make of what she says. She the two things that she points to 
are him serving on Joseph McCarthy's right. um, committee. And and she also refers to him wiretapping uh, Martin Luther King. But I'm not sure that she could have known that uh, at the time that she's talking about, because I, I don't think that really too. came out until, you know, in in during his campaign in 68, right. as, as, as I understand. Well, um, the black community believed very strongly that they were mm. being taped. I mean, you know, I've told you before, my my. Great grandfather is Ben Robeson, my brother of Paul Robeson, um, and so during that time, like everybody felt like they were being wiretapped. So she may not have known it to be like a fact, like in the papers. I see, but I am one hundred percent positive, and I know this. She would, she would have blamed yeah. the Attorney General of the United States for authorizing. Everybody knew what Hoover was interested in. Um, you know, I can remember my grandmother said. Um, she used to have like people like Harry Belafonte and Paul Robeson, you know, other people in her apartment because they figured it wouldn't be tapped. Uh-huh. So they could meet at her place because it was, you know, they would find safe places to meet. So th- that's my guess. I didn't, I, see. I didn't ask her that, but that's, that's my guess. Oh, that makes sense. Um, but, um, you know, film is not a book report, right? So, um, I think what you want to try and do is not be so romantic that you give a misimpression um, and you want to have some voices, you know, that that kind of point to it's you can't, you know, even just for film reasons, you can't appreciate growth unless you know where somebody's begun. Hmm. So, um, you know, that I think it's important to try and at least give nods to, you know, it's it's not a commercial. <laughs> Something that always makes me approach this history warily is that there is a kind of what if quality to it. What if Martin Luther King wasn't assassinated? What if Bobby Kennedy wasn't assassinated? And and I'm not sure what to do with that because the fact is they were. And uh, and and also if Bobby Kennedy wasn't assassinated, we don't know that he would have become president in 1968. We, we don't know what he would have done. done. Yeah, right. Even King, like who knows, you know, what the future would have held. Um, I do think, though, that the exercise of imagining, you know, a, a world with Bobby Kennedy rather than without it is is a worthwhile one. And that's because um, we shouldn't just take what's given to us. We should actually think about because what you do during that exercise is you imagine you know, you you deeply think about the political understandings and the political proclivities of these people, and you imagine how they should play out. So rather than like just watching democracy happen, that means you're thinking about it. You're thinking about how, what would a Kennedy administration, like how could that have been different from a Nixon administration? The other thing is you certainly see um, people are so despondent, you know, and you see the the convention of 1968 is just a holy mess. I mean, it is so violent, and and the the protests, and the riots. You know, we certainly know that wouldn't have happened, right? So, you know, what if is I, I I'm kind of with you in the what if is is frustrating, um, but I think if it causes you to more deeply consider what came before, that that probably is worthwhile. That's worth doing. Or maybe that we don't have to settle for what we have. We don't have to settle for what we have. And um, 
we have to be part of what we're going to get. <laughs> you know, you can't just count on somebody else to save you. You've actually got to continue to participate. You know, the other thing is it took a long time, but we did recover from that tumultuous time. And, um, you know, I think many people are feeling like pulling the covers over their heads still today. Um, and that's just really not an option. <laughs> I mean, what if people pulled the covers over their heads, you know, in, in the 1960s? The fact that I'm sitting here, the fact that I can do this job as a black woman, how, how much slower would that progress have been hmm. if people didn't make sacrifices so that I could be here? I want to thank Dawn Porter for speaking with me. Her four-part series, Bobby Kennedy for President, is now streaming on Netflix. This interview was recorded in Montclair, New Jersey. If you're a frequent listener, you've probably heard me mention Montclair before, but I need to set the record straight about this town as it relates to Dawn. I moved here seven years ago with my wife, Rafaela to help start the Montclair Film Festival. We were coming from Manhattan, only 12 miles away, but we had a lot to learn about the suburbs. Dawn was a longtime Montclair resident and a great friend in our transition. Then two years ago, her family relocated to San Francisco for her husband's work. Now she has a beef with me about Montclair. People ask me if I live in Tom Powers' town, um, which irritates me to no end. So if you want to irritate me, ask me if I live in Tom Powers' town of Montclair, New Jersey. Okay, I'm just getting it right out here. Now Dawn was in Montclair before I was. Thank you. Thank you. I hope everyone remembers that. Like for a long time before you were. Like a long 11 time. years. I, I haven't even clocked that much time here. <laughs> Montclair Film is now led by executive director Tom Hall and operates year-round screenings and classes. I'm pleased to serve on its advisory board. For more information, go to montclairfilm.org. Thanks to our team. Series producer, Sarah Modo. Sound mixer, Tom Micah and web designer, Cross Strategy. Our theme music is composed by Andre Williams, and our executive producer is Rafaela Nehausen. I'm Tom Powers. You can follow me on Twitter at T-H-O-M Powers. I invite you to listen to our short-form podcast, Documentary of the Week from WNYC. You'll find over 160 documentary recommendations. Pure Nonfiction is distributed by the TIFF Podcast Network. You can read our show notes, learn about live events, and sign up for our newsletter at purenonfiction.net.